1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12 through to chapter 2 verse 11. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness before me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. For I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So last week we, we had a very brief introduction to our new series on 2 Corinthians and I'd said that we'd, we'd have a more fuller introduction this week. But something I did share last week was that for us to get a bit of a feel for this letter, in some way we need to begin to grasp 
what is a very deep personal hurt, and that is the broken heart of a pastor. Paul loved this church. He, he loved this church very deeply. And we can see this coming through in his letter, that the way that he's got this broken heart for this church. And a second thing that I said is, well, this is a letter. We're reading someone else's mail. And because it's a letter, we've really only got one side of the conversation. And so we need to be really careful that, that we don't try and read too much into this letter. But by the same token, we're also going to miss a lot of really important stuff if we don't diligently study this letter. And even though it is a letter, and even though we only do have one side of the conversation, um, we do know a bit about the history of this church in Corinth, and we know a bit about the relationship that Paul had with this church. And even from this letter itself, it's pretty obvious to see when Paul is mounting a defence. And the most likely reason that he's mounting a defence is because he's being accused of something. Righto, so um, that's what we talked about last week in the introduction, but... To continue the introduction, I, I thought the easiest way would just be for me to reshare what I shared with you when we studied 1 Corinthians, just to get a picture of what Corinth and the church in Corinth were like. So, situated in southern Greece, Corinth was a massive city. It was the third largest city in the whole of the Roman Empire, with a population of around about 200,000 people, the only places in the Roman Empire that were any bigger were Rome itself and Alexandria in northern Egypt. So Corinth was huge and it was a very important trading city. If you can see on the map up there, that there's a really narrow neck of land there that, that separates two very important harbours, one on the east and the other on the west. And Corinth was right on that narrow neck of land. It was in the ideal spot to, to receive freight on one side in one harbour, and then they'd shift the freight over the land to the harbour on the other side, and that way the ships didn't have to have a very long and dangerous voyage around the capes to the south. And so Corinth was a very big, very important, very rich, thriving city. Uh, it was originally Greek, and then Rome destroyed it, but then they finally rebuilt it again. And so the culture was, was a mixture of both the Roman culture and the Greek culture. And it was very immoral. Corinth was the worship of, 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 the, of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. And its temple had a thousand sacred prostitutes. And so if you went to that temple to worship, it was just like going to a brothel. But God did something really good in Corinth. On Paul's missionary trips, usually he would arrive in a place, he'd preach the gospel, people would be offended by it, and usually they'd run him out of town. So he'd only be there a few days or a few weeks before he got run out of town, and so he'd go to the next spot and he'd do the same thing all over again. But that didn't happen in Corinth. Yes, when Paul preached the gospel, they did take offence. And yes, they did try to run him out of town, but they took him to the authorities and the authorities found that he was innocent of all of these charges that they were bringing against him. And so he ended up staying there for quite a while. I think it was about 18 months that he stayed there. And so Corinth was pretty was different to 
most places that Paul had been. And the church in Corinth was different because he'd been able to spend so much time there with them. He, he was able to get them firmly planted on the road to being disciples of Jesus. And he'd also had time to form some deep relationships with these people. And he felt responsible for them. And in 1 Corinthians, we can see the way that Paul feels towards this church when he says, look, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. But then as we studied 1 Corinthians, we discovered that the church in Corinth were a church who'd lost their love. They'd lost their unity. Some of them had even lost the core of the gospel and, and some of the most fundamental elements of faith. Uh, some of them were beginning to question whether the resurrection was even a thing. And one of their members was in an immoral, incestuous relationship. But then there were others in the church who celebrated it. And they said, oh, look at us. We're so free. Isn't this wonderful that we can experience the grace of God in such a way that we can just do this? It, it was one messed up church. So how did they get so far off track? Well, when Paul left, some out-of-towners came in, false teachers, and they were claiming to be apostles, and they had infiltrated the church. And, and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are letters that Paul needed to write to that church in Corinth to try and deal with the false apostles and to try and bring that church back onto track again. Right, so as you can see from the table up there on the screen, after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he did visit Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians, he refers to that visit as the painful visit. It didn't go very well at all. He went there to sort them out, but, but it all went pear-shaped. And from this letter that we're studying now, we can see that there was probably a fair bit of argy-bargy between Paul and, and those that Paul sarcastically refers to as the super-apostles. But he couldn't just leave it at that. And so after that visit, he wrote him another letter. And in 2 Corinthians, he refers to that letter as the severe letter. Now, we don't have that letter anymore. Anyway... Paul had plans to visit Corinth, but he changed his itinerary. And a couple of times he changed it. And it seems like his adversaries were using the way that he'd changed his mind a couple of times as evidence that Paul was unreliable and as evidence that, oh, you shouldn't be trusting Paul. And in today's Bible reading, we can see Paul mounting his defence against these accusations. You can just imagine the, the allegations that they would have been making. Yeah, this bloke, Paul, you can't trust him. He's not a man of his word. He said he was coming on his way back, and then he didn't. He's not an apostle at all. How could he be an apostle when he's just flip-flopping and changing his mind all the time? Have you ever noticed that when someone has an agenda or when somebody's got it in for somebody else, every slightest little thing gets used as evidence to build a case against them. I mean, how, how petty is this? In 1 Corinthians, Paul told them that he was going to, to visit them after he'd been to Macedonia, right? So I'm going to Macedonia and then I'll come to visit you. 
But as he explains in this letter, he later thought, well, actually, I could visit them twice. I could pop in on my way to Macedonia, and then, like I'd planned, I can visit you on my way from Macedonia, on my way to Judea. I can visit them again. And so he changed his plan. And so he arrived to them, arrived there on his way to Macedonia, and that visit is what is now described as the painful visit. But he still had plans to visit them on the way back, but then circumstances changed and he didn't get back to them. And as I'm reading this, I'm going, how petty is this? I mean, essentially what happened was he said, I'm going to visit you on my way from Macedonia, but instead he visited them on the way to Macedonia. Who cares? He promised them a visit. They got a visit. You see, to make an issue out of something like this, it's just utter pettiness. But that's what people can be like. And sadly, even in the church, some people can be that petty. When they've got it in for someone, every petty little thing they store up as evidence against them. They're really grasping at straws here. They're looking for evidence against Paul. They're wanting to make him look bad. And so they grab hold of it and they say, there you go. He's not a man of his word. You can't trust him. He's dishonest. But when Paul examined his own actions... His conscience was completely clear. He hadn't wronged them. He hadn't taken advantage of them. In all of his letters, he'd never tried to deceive them. And even in this letter, he says, I hope you understand this, right? There, there is no hidden meaning here. I'm, I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. That There is no trick here. What I say is what I mean. It's plain, it's simple, read it, understand it. Paul and his missionary mates had acted in simplicity and godly sincerity. That's, that's his analysis. And more than this, their actions were actually a demonstration of the grace of God. When Paul examined his motives and his actions, his conscience was completely clear. Now, I can't always say that. Sometimes I've made decisions and I've done things and I thought, yeah, no, I'm doing the right thing here. But then I've examined my actions later and I've sort of realised, yeah, maybe there was a bit of self in there. Uh, maybe, maybe I did have ulterior motives there. But then there's times when, just like Paul, there's been times when I've been accused of doing the wrong thing. And similar to Paul... Petty little bits of evidence have been gathered against me. And then in the cold light of day, I've, I've examined my actions, I've examined my motivations, and, and my conscience has been completely clear. I believe that I did the right thing. I believe God was leading me to do this, and I did it. And therefore, I've been obedient to God, and I'd do it again. But they're being petty against Paul. But how did he respond? You see, he's desperate that he and the Corinthian church be reconciled. And he says, on the day of the Lord Jesus, I want you to boast in me like what I'm going to boast in you. 
Now, when Paul's talking about the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking about the day of judgment. When Jesus returns, the wicked will be judged and the disciples of Jesus will be received into glory. Right? So what he's doing is, is, is he's reminding me how we relate to each other as Christians. It's got eternal ramifications here. And Paul is saying, on that day, I want you to boast about me just like what I'm going to boast about you. I want our relationship to be right. But what's this boasting thing about? Boasting's a bad thing, isn't it? I know. You know, when we say to our kids, oh, no, boast, don't boast, don't boast, that's naughty. Well, there's good boasting and there's bad boasting. There is such a thing as fleshly boasting and there is such a thing as godly boasting. In Jeremiah chapter 9, it says this, Thus says Yahweh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says Yahweh. We shouldn't be ashamed of the Lord our God. There is godly boasting. And godly boasting is about letting the world know who God is and it's publicly rejoicing in the righteousness of God that we've now received through Christ. That's the boast. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul quoted Jeremiah chapter 9. And he explained what godly boasting is about. He says, none of us can boast in God because of our own strength or our own wisdom or because we're particularly nice or particularly marvellous people. It's only through Christ Jesus that we receive the wisdom of God. It's only through Christ Jesus that we receive righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, it is a completely undeserved gift given by God. And we talked about that last week when we talked about grace. We talk about grace most weeks. And so godly boasting, it's not about me going, oh, I'm godly and you're not. Nah, 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 nah. That's not the sort of godly boasting we're talking about. Godly boasting is acknowledging that God has been so gracious. I didn't deserve it, but God called me. And the boast that Paul is talking about here is to be excited about having a shared experience of grace. So even though there's been angst between Paul and a few of the people there in Corinth, he is still proud of them. He is so proud of them. that He is so proud that they had experienced the grace of God and that they are saved. His boast is about what Christ has done in them. And it's exactly the same thing as what Christ has done in him. Paul and they shared a common experience in the grace of God. And that's how he could boast about the church. Do you ever boast about your church? 
You ever boast about bush disciples? You know, sometimes, when pe- sometimes people do start boasting about their church and, oh, you know, we're the greatest church. We've got the greatest church ever. You should see the amazing worship band that we've got. It is amazing. We just get, we can just, it's just like a concert. It is fantastic. And our pastor, he is so awesome. Our pastor, he's just greatest pastor ever. And the seats are comfy and the coffee. We got good coffee. We got the best coffee in town. You know, and, and the kids program, they just love it, right? We, we know that sort of boast, right? Guess what? That is not godly boasting. That's worldly boasting. And I'm confident that none of you boast about bush disciples like that, simply because it wouldn't be true, right? You know, we're, we're a little tiny little tin pot show, right? Robin doesn't like it when I say that, because that's what God's made us, but that's what we are. There's nothing to boast about like that. But do you know what godly boasting about your church looks like? And I do hope you boast like this. There's no one special in our church, but Jesus is amazing. Together, we have a shared experience of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a boast to make. None of us are amazing people, but we do have an amazing God. And he has done an amazing work in us. That's our boast. Do you see the difference? A godly boast focuses on Christ. A godly boast focuses on his grace despite us not deserving it. It's all about what God has done, not about how fantastic we are. Right And even though the accusation against Paul was very petty, he didn't just write it off with a simple correction of facts. What he does is he takes them to Christ and he takes us to the example of Christ. Essentially, Paul's change of itinerary was actually rooted in the gospel message that he preaches. In essence, what Paul says is, Just as God is faithful, I was being faithful. Let me explain. They were accusing him of just flip-flopping, changing his mind. But Paul is saying, I don't make my plans according to the flesh. You see, self-interested people change their mind to suit themselves. They change their mind to suit their own agenda. But that's not what Paul did. Paul changed his itinerary, not out of self-interest. It was done out of concern for them. He said, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth again. In all of the letters that Paul wrote to them and in the painful visit that he had with them, he didn't do any of those things to, to cause them pain. He said, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. You know as well as I do that sometimes when people are hurting, when somebody has it in for you, Actually, let's turn that around. 
Let's look at it from the other perspective because we're not perfect. Let's look at it from the perspective of when we have it in for someone else, we can't see the love. No matter how much love they give us, we just process it as offence. Sometimes, no matter what gets said, it gets all misunderstood or it purposely gets taken the wrong way and it just causes more offence. More offence, more pain, more bitterness. And that's the position that Paul was in with the Corinthians. Didn't matter what he said, didn't matter how much love that he showed them, it was just at that state in the relationship that they would just take it as more offence, more pain. And so he wasn't just flip-flopping out of his own interest. He did it out of obedience to God. In verse 19, he said, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Now, this passage, it's, it's, it seems a bit higgledy-piggledy. It's a bit all over the place and he seems to be chopping and changing and he goes off on tangents and it's a bit hard to keep track of it. But let's just unpack that bit. What he's saying there, he's not saying that Jesus always says, says yes to whatever we desire. What he's saying is that Jesus always says yes to God's grand design. Jesus always says yes to God's will. God's plan, God's design for salvation was fulfilled in Jesus. It cost him dearly. But Jesus got on board with it and he embraced God's will, even though it cost him greatly. And God was glorified in the obedience of Christ and guess what? God is glorified whenever his disciples are obedient to him too. That's us. And sometimes obedience to God means we need to put our own plans aside. Now, I've experienced this. I, there's been times when I've had plans and, and people thought that they knew my plans, but then God sent us in a different direction and and. Some people even to this day are very bitter at me and some people still use this as evidence that I can't be trusted. But when God gives his marching orders, what kind of a disciple of Jesus would I be if I disobeyed him and didn't listen? And what sort of disciple would, would Paul be if he didn't obey? You see, Paul wasn't changing his mind for his own benefit. Obedience to God was more important than sticking to his itinerary. Let's move on. So far, it could seem like Paul is being motivated by defending his position of authority in the church. But in reality, he's building up to something much greater and much more important than that. And it's a message for the Corinthian church. Paul's concern for the Corinthian church 
was for them to be an expression of the reconciling community of Christ. Right? Paul's concern for that Corinthian church was for them to become and be a reconciling community of Christ. So once again, we're reading someone else's mail and we've only got one side of the conversation. And so we do need to read between the lines a bit. And it seems that in Corinth, the arch antagonists are the false teachers the, who had moved in from out of town, the, the false apostles, Paul sarcastically calls them the super apostles. But then a few people, and one person in particular, and this will come out here shortly, one person in particular were convic convinced by them, and they also became strong antagonists against Paul. But it also seems, and this is something that we mightn't pick up, except for in this section here, it also seems that the majority of the church weren't convinced by the false apostles. It seems that the majority of the Paul did stand, sorry, the majority of the church did stand firm in the gospel and did remain loyal to Paul. And following his painful visit and severe letter, most of the congregation stepped up. Most of the congregation who still loved Paul took action against the antagonists. And that's what Paul has been urging them to do in his letters. Now, something really great happened when, that, when they did that. It seems like the local antagonist repented. He realised that he'd gone on the wrong track and he repented. But the outsiders, the super apostles, did not. Now, how do we deal with that? In the church, how do you deal with a troublemaker in church? Someone who brings in, who gets diverted by false teaching and then starts causing division within the church. How do you deal with that? Well, the natural human reaction is to give them the short shift. They've done their dash. You can never, they, that person can never be trusted again. And they think that oh, no, we could never forgive them for that. That's a natural human reaction. And when someone has had a, had a key role in, in um, bringing false, you know, embracing false teaching in a church and then dividing a church because of it, memories can be long. They can be very long against that person. Can such a person ever be forgiven? Well, in Christ, the answer has to be, it must be, yes. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ has to be, it must be, a reconciling community. If we are a church who don't forgive, we are not the church of Jesus Christ. Because forgiveness is his business. And if we're about the business of the Father, then we must be a forgiving church. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just let evil and false teaching go unchecked and coexist with what is right and proper. Nor does it mean that if false teaching comes in, then we just give that person a piece of our mind, and then even though they don't repent, that we just continue on agreeing to disagree. 
It's essential that, that we root out evil and false teaching in the church. See, when it comes to reconciliation in the church, there's a process, a clear biblical process to be followed. And it's actually the same as reconciliation between us and Christ. It's about confrontation, sorrow, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation and restoration. And so that's the same as the way that we are reconciled to God, right? When I sin, the Holy Spirit in some way confronts me over my sin. And the confrontation has to be such that I am moved to sorrow, that I am truly sorrowful for what I've done wrong. Sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance is I acknowledge my sin, Yes, I have done wrong. And I turn away from that sin. I agree with God that, no, that I shouldn't be living like that. I'm changing my behaviour. I'm going to start following you from now on. With God's help, I'm going to do this. And at that point, God forgives me completely. I don't have to then go and do acts of penance to earn forgiveness. I don't have to then go and do acts of penance to, to prove that I'm forgiven. I am completely forgiven. That's what grace is about. And in the knowledge of that forgiveness, I'm reconciled to God and restored to a state of righteousness. And that's the way it's supposed to happen in the church. The church has to be God's forgiving, reconciling community. When someone has caused trouble in a church... There needs to be confrontation. We can't just let sleeping dogs lie. When there is wrong in the church, when there is false teaching in the church, when there is evil in the church, it has to be identified and confronted with the truth and with God's standard of righteousness. And the confrontation has to be such that, that the perpetrators are truly sorrowful for the evil that they've done. If they're not sorrowful then it doesn't lead to true repentance. Because sorrow leads to repentance. They acknowledge their sin. They acknowledge that the path that they've taken is false and that they've been quite wrong. And so they repent of the false teaching that they've embraced. They, they repent of their wrong actions that they've done. Then they repent of the division that they've wrongly brought about. Now, at that point... If they have truly repented, the church must forgive them. And in the knowledge of that forgiveness, the church are reconciled to one another and the relationship is restored. In this process, the church demonstrates the very reconciliation of Christ. But Paul could see that the Corinthian church had not been that reconciling community. They were carrying a grudge. Right? That, that local antagonist had caused Paul a lot of pain. But in doing so, he'd caused the whole church pain. And when we've been hurt, sometimes we feel we have the right to retaliate. Retaliate. 
Sometimes we feel that I've got the right to, to hit them back, and give them the same pain back. And Paul's, what Paul's saying here is, hey, you've punished him enough. You, the majority, have spoken against him. And he's seen that what he did is wrong. He's repented. You've punished him enough. And if you keep on punishing him, he's just going to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And, and Paul actually starts begging them, hey, it's time to show this bloke a bit of love. I've forgiven him. And now you need to forgive him too. Church division is the work of Satan. Satan hates Jesus' church. The church is Jesus' reconciling community of his disciples in this world. That's his plan. That's the way that he's designed it. Satan, on the other hand, well, he has his own plans. He has his own designs, and that's to tear God's church apart. And he does it with false teaching and division. And you know how he keeps it apart? Unforgiveness. And the only way for the church to escape this is for us to forgive like God forgives. For the church to be the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be a truly forgiving community and a reconciling community. True repentance must lead to true forgiveness. Most brokenness in churches comes because there either isn't true repentance or there isn't true forgiveness. For a church to be reconciled, there needs to be both. And that was the message that Paul was giving that church in Corinth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that you are the God who forgives. And we want to thank you that we've been reconciled to you Lord, we pray that your church, this church, would be a truly reconciling community of Christ. Lord, I pray that as a church that, that you would guard us from false teaching entering in. Lord, guard our hearts and minds that, that we wouldn't embrace false teaching. But Lord, whether it be through false teaching or whether it be through personal reasons or whatever, Lord, we, we recognise that brokenness can come into a church in many ways. And Lord, we pray that you would guard our hearts Lord, that we wouldn't be a people who just get it in for someone. But Lord, that, that we would be a people who, when we examine our own actions, we can see in the cold light of day that 
We've done the right thing. We've been obedient to you. But in the times when we haven't, Lord, Father, help us to repent. Help us to repent of the wrong that we've done. And Lord, we pray also that you would help us to be a people who forgive when those who are broken do repent. Lord, help us to be people who are as fast to forgive as what you are. That we wouldn't be people who hold a grudge. But that because of the grace that we receive from you, that we would be able to give grace to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.